before I give my greeting, let me invite you to take out your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Extend my thanks for the invitation from, I think you call it the steering committee of the Foreign Baptist Fellowship of Virginia. Very thankful for this opportunity. Although I, I do feel quite unworthy to the task, and I'll give you a couple reasons for that as we go. Um, I was told by one of my church members this morning that he heard a saying that the uh, person that goes first is often the one that knows the least. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't saying that to me to discourage me, but just letting me know uh, he had heard someone else say that before. But <laughs> Let us attend to the Word of God now, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if... God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Then if you would go with me a few pages to the right to Titus chapter 3, maybe just one page in your, in your Bible. Titus 3 verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, Deceiving or deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Let's open with a word of prayer. Again, our Lord, we come to you with great need. Lord, I confess to you my need as a one who is ordained and called to preach the gospel, how weak and feeble I am. My mind is weak, my words are weak, but Lord, you are not. Lord, as we attend now to the Word of God and what we confess the Word of God teaches, as we consider this doctrine of repentance, Lord, we also confess that our minds are weak and prone to wander. Our hearts desire idols. We lust after the flesh and after things that are sinful. And Lord, we do repent of these. And we confess them now and ask for your help and aid, not only in my voice, but in, in our ears, that we hear the word of God and you be magnified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I was asked to take up in our confession of faith, chapter 15, paragraphs 1 and 2. And I'll have you know that I tried very hard to slough it off to an expert uh, who is in this room, uh, who literally has written a book on this, and uh, he declined. <laughs> I tried hard. 
So I'm letting you know ahead of time, if this is subpar, it's not my fault that he declined. <laughs> and I'm going to warn you ahead of time that this message is going to seem a bit out of place when we address a doctrine such as repentance unto life and salvation. We would expect to begin with a definition of the doctrine. We would expect to, to open up this doctrine as if uh, we were going to lay out a foundation and then build upon that. I think we'll find that we don't actually have a theological definition of what we mean by repentance until we get to paragraph 3 of our confession. And I was asked to do paragraphs 1 and 2. And so as not to preach that sermon about what repentance actually is or how we might uh, define it, I'm going to leave that uh, for later. I do want to limit myself to matters that are addressed in paragraphs 1 and 2 of our confession. And so if it does seem like we're jumping in right away, it's because our confession is structured that way. And perhaps as we get to the conclusion, as I uh, seek to make application, hopefully we can see why this actually is an adequate introduction to the doctrine of repentance. It may not be the definitional introduction, but it is definitely a pastoral and applicable introduction. But for now, let me just introduce you to the biblical words that our Bible uses to convey the notion of repentance. Four biblical words that underline the general meaning of this doctrine. I give them to you so at least we have some kind of foundation as to understand what we mean when we say repentance. There are two Hebrew words I'll, I'll mention and two Greek words. The first Hebrew word is the word shuv, which simply means to turn, turn back, uh, or to return. It's a significant word considering the constant theme of Israel going into uh, slavery and exile and returning back to the promised land or returning to inheritance. The other Hebrew word is nicham. It's a fun word to say because it's onomatopoeic. Onomatopoeic, however you say that. <laughs> In other words, the word itself, as you say it, conveys what it means. Nicham. You almost can hear the, the, the breathing in. And then the relief as you sigh, a sigh of relief. And so it's a very unique word that conveys a lot of different meanings. It can convey comfort. It can convey sympathy. But it can also uh, render the notion of grief or sorrow. But when it's used in the passive, or rather the reflexive, which means that it's done for oneself, it has this idea to change one's mind or reconsider or relent. So I'll give you one passage in the Old Testament that uses both these words. Jeremiah 26.3 says, Perhaps everyone will listen and turn shuv, from his evil way, that I, God speaking here, may necham, relent, concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. Then there's two Greek words that we see in the New Testament. Metanoia and epistrephe. Metanoia simply has the same concept of turning, but it really literally means after the mind. As if to say that your mind has changed, you're, you're now in a new mindset, and the idea being that if your mind has changed, your actions will also change. And then epistrephe literally means to turn around, to go back or to uh, go a different direction. It has the idea of conversion um, that we see in Acts 15.3, the conversion of the Gentiles. These two words come together in Acts 3.19 with the command, repent, metanoio, the, the verb there, therefore, and turn back, epistrepho that your sins may be blotted out. So from these four words, the basic idea is set into place that whatever we mean by repentance, again, we'll leave that for later, the, the full theological definition, we know that the idea means to turn, to return, 
to have a change of mind, a, a different way of thinking, perhaps just simply way, a way of saying it is to turn from sin and turn towards Christ. And so from these four words, we have the idea set in place. So then now let us take up our confession. What is it that we as Reformed Baptists confess concerning um, repentance? If you have a Trinity hymnal before you, you can probably find the, you can find the confession of faith uh, in the back there. If not, I'll read it out loud. I don't know if it's in the bulletin or not. But we'll look at, uh, briefly, paragraphs 1 and 2. I'll read them out loud for you. And you may follow along as we proceed. We confess, such of the elect as are converted at riper years, having sometimes lived in the state of nature, and therein served diverse lusts and pleasures, God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. Whereas there is none that doth good and sinneth not, and the best of men may, through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation, fall into great sins and provocations, God hath in the covenant of grace mercifully provided that believers, so sinning and falling, be renewed for repentance unto salvation. Now for those of you unaware, that our chapter 15 comes not from the Westminster Confession of Faith, but from the Savoy Declaration. The Savoy Declaration is a rewrite of the chapter 15 from the Westminster, and we need to explain why this is. Why is our chapter 15 a rewrite of Westminster? Why did the Savoy Synod uh, rewrite this chapter? And in that rewrite, I believe paragraph 1 from the Savoy, and now also in Second London, opens this doctrine of repentance unto life and salvation in a very most peculiar way. As I said, it does not begin with a definition of repentance. That waits until paragraph 3. And so we are very likely to ask, why are we opening not with this definition? Why are we not giving a general description of repentance, but rather we're diving into matters such as the elect as are converted unto riper years? Does that strike you as odd that the confession begins that way? <laughs> lastly, there is some division as to how paragraph 1 is to be understood, mainly due to the differences of understanding of the term riper years, not language that we're accustomed to using in our general parlance. There are two general interpretations. Riper years either means uh, mature in life, older, uh, up in years, or anything not infant could be considered riper years. And overall, as we think of paragraph 1 of chapter 15, I want to offer three views in total. I want to give you three views of what paragraph 1 means and what it's doing. And I give you three views because there are now, soon to be on the market, three different expositions of our confession. And wouldn't you know it, as I'm studying, each one of these expositions give a slightly different uh, meaning here. So I'm... I'm giving that little caveat ahead of time. I'm not necessarily going to uh, argue for one meaning over another. I'm not trying to be postmodern on you. I'm just letting you uh, hear the, 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 the various views. The views are all sound as far as they go in their teaching. But there is one view that I think accounts best for the historical circumstances and uh, accounts for why the Savoy rewrote. So I'll let you listen to those and you can come to your conclusion. But there are three thorny problems that I've already alluded to. Why or what accounts for the Savoy Declaration and therefore our confession to change from the Westminster? Why, why the rewrite? Secondly, why start with the issue of riper years? And then what does riper years even mean? So I want to offer three different views. And I'm not going to tell you who holds what few. 
If you know who is writing these various expositions of the confession, you'll have to do your own legwork. Because uh, I don't want to uh, uh, indict anybody. So here we go. The first view of our paragraph 1, chapter 15, I'm calling the pastoral arguments. The pastoral arguments. And this argument goes this way, that the confession begins this way to go out of its way to connect repentance to the effectual calling from chapter 10. That's why it cites Titus 3, 2 through 5, which we read already. And in doing so, it is meant to encourage and remind us that no matter how wicked someone is, and no matter how late in life a sinner may be, they are not beyond the limits of God's sovereign, infinite, saving grace. And therefore, perhaps the confession opens this way in chapter 15, lest we be tempted to think that we, as ministers of the gospel, if you're either a minister of the gospel or you're training in seminary to become one, lest we be tempted to think that we only preach repentance unto life and salvation to young people who are not disposed to a long and great life of sin. We are to avoid that temptation. It's the opposite that is true. That we preach even to the greatest of sinners, trusting that the sovereign God of the universe will regenerate the hearts of His elect through the effectual call, bringing even the most obstinate sinner to repentance. Taking this view, the, what I'm calling the pastoral argument, this paragraph then gives as a possibility of conversion that a sinner may repent, repent at a younger age, or after many years, a sinner might convert after hearing only one sermon, or after many years being softened over uh, a course of many sermons, a sinner may repent. And so we cannot pigeonhole God's sovereign ends of effectual calling that grants repentance, and therefore we cannot restrict our gospel proclamation ministry either. Additionally, we do not expect and require every convert to have a Damascus Road experience as the Apostle Paul did. Indeed, we rejoice in those homes where youths are brought up, catechized, not wandering off into sin, kept close to the law of God and hearing and exposed to the gospel, not having a, a, a lived a great life of sin. We rejoice in those uh, homes. On the other hand, we do allow for those stark conversions, and we preach towards those great conversions nonetheless. Now, if you take this view, whether you agree that the confession is teaching this, the point still remains. I think the truth of this argument is, is, is founded in Scripture. And it remains for those of you who are called to preach, for those of you who are called or training to preach the gospel. That in my experience, I've seen preachers, preachers who ardently believe the doctrine of total depravity, they love the tea and tulip. They love it so much that they neglect or believe somehow that God's unconditional election, that Christ's particular redemption or the Spirit's irresistible effectual call, while they think it's true, they think it's unlikely to occur. And sometimes their pessimism when they enter the pulpit takes over. Their pessimism over humanity overwhelms their confidence in a sovereign God. And thus to that pastor or preacher or the man who is training for the ministry, I would say, if that is your perspective, woe. Woe to the gospel preacher who operates as a pessimist. Woe to the preacher who, whether in theory or practice, subtly believes that man's depravity supersedes God's sovereign work to convert even the greatest of sinners. If you need encouragement, read King Nebuchadnezzar. 
probably the greatest sinner in the Old Testament, brought low and experienced repentance. Pastors in here, have we forgotten that Romans 1.16 tells us that the power of God to salvation is the gospel. It is the power of God. And so ministers of the gospel, we enter the pulpit, yes with fear, yes with trepidation, that we're entering as a herald to the king. And we dare not change the king's message, but we also enter the pulpit hopeful and expectant that God's word will accomplish what God himself sovereignly sets out for it to do. Now the second argument I'm going to call the theological argument, or perhaps even we might call it the gospel argument. It's very much like the first, but it's coming from a different source, so I separated it out. The gospel argument, the theological argument says this, that the confession is not seeking to teach that only those later in life have to repent, yet it does distinguish between repentance granted to those converted at riper years versus repentance granted generally to all believers. However, by starting this way, rather than defining repentance, what the confession is seeking to accomplish is to ward off the notion that repentance is of necessity a crisis experience. Let me say that again. I think this is helpful. That the reason that the confession is starting this way is to ward off the notion that repentance is of necessity a crisis experience. And that is often the case for those who who are converted later in life, or those who have lived much time in sin. Rather, this view says that repentance is an ordinary evangelical grace that all believers must experience, though not all believers experience it in the same way ordinarily. Repentance is an ordinary evangelical grace that all believers must experience, though not all believers experience it the same way. In other words, every regenerate child of God will experience repentance. And in that way, it is an evangelical grace. It is a common experience among all truly converted. But the young believer may not have the same kind of conversion experience as, say, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. In Acts 16, this man is ready to kill himself, and only moments later he repents and turns to Christ. That is an earthquake kind of conversion experience. The proponent of this view says this, and again, I'm not going to name him. You can sift through the pages and determine who I'm talking about later. He says this, that both converts will experience repentance, but both may not have a crisis conversion, of, a crisis conversion experience. And so theologically then, you must not doubt your salvation if you did not undergo the same kind of conversion experience as another penitent believer. Nor, as pastors, should we demand that every convert, every uh, member or, or people uh, seeking membership should have that same kind of crisis experience of conversion as a distinguishing mark. This view says that we are to uh, avoid such a notion. And this is helpful. I'm going I'm, I'm going to skip my Flavel quote. It's a very good quote. I'll give it to you later if you're interested in it. <laughs> But this is helpful in terms of our encouragement. That if we take this meaning of, of our confession in 15.1, the truth of this argument, it's crucial that we accept. That there's probably some, even sitting here today, who have likely struggled with the assurance of salvation. And you struggled because you said, well, I've not had the Damascus Road experience, like my brother or sister. I don't remember this seismic shift in my thinking. This is important for me because uh, as I was uh, uh, speaking with one of my church members, I did have that experience. 
I did live in sin for a long time until I was converted at 19 years old. My wife, on the other hand, converted at a very young age, brought up in a very strong gospel home, does not have that experience. Is she to think that her conversion, her repentance, is any less? Is it nil? Some of you perhaps deal with that struggle. Some of you struggle with the idea that, is my repentance truly genuine? I didn't have a seismic shift. I didn't have some earthquake, earth-shattering moment where I saw a blinding light on the road to Damascus. And yet the comfort of repentance as an evangelical grace is that in God's sovereign, ordaining all things whatsoever comes to pass, you may not have grown in great wickedness. That's a good thing. And your repentance in the life may not have been all that shattering. It may not have been this earthquake experience of seismic proportions. And that's okay because ultimately our standing before God is not contingent upon the kind of experience we have. But in our turning from our own evil ways and trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the seismic quake of your conversion experience is not determinative of whether you have truly repented or not. Hear me. If you're struggling with assurance, your seismic quake of conversion experience is not determinative of whether you have truly repented. The gospel is not repent all of you who are so deep in sin that it's going to be an earthquake experience. All the rest of you are on your own. That's not what Jesus says. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The third argument I'm calling the historical argument. One notable historical theologian, who I'll not mention, but you can shake his hand later. <laughs> I'm not naming any names. Uh, he is anchored at the beginning of chapter 15 in paragraph 1 over a debate in the mid-1600s, around the same time as the Savoy Synod, concerning whether God regenerates infants who die as... Uh, whether they die, can they be saved? If they've never exhibited repentance, can they be regenerate? And whether repentance is required of, it, of an infant if they were to die. As it pertains to 15.1 of her confession, this theologian who will remain nameless says of the expression, uh, the, the, the expression riper years, that it contrasts infants with those who are able to hear and believe the gospel. He says that this idiom, riper years, is loose enough to include not only those later in life, as I'm, I was prone to take it, but also simply one group being older than another. So in this case, anyone old enough to hear, anyone old enough to understand the gospel, are those of riper years over against infants. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, one who was part of the uh, Savoy Synod, in addressing the matter of repentance in infants, he wrote this, and notice the language that is used. He says, The great God hath ordered it so that the generality of the elect that live to riper years should for some time remain in a condition of sin and wrath, and then he renews them and turns them to himself. This is the language that Savoy and our confession draw from. And then Goodwin clarified himself, saying, My meaning is not that God regenerates none, but such are grown to riper years, in other words, leaving out infants. I should be injurious to multitudes of his elect. If I so asserted, but as infants are capable of all the essentials of regeneration, so de facto it is evident that he regenerates multitudes of them whilst such. So this is a historical argument. And from this historical standpoint, therefore, the confession at 15.1 is not denying that infants dying in infancy 
are consigned to hell because they can't express this mode of repentance. This was actually an accusation leveled against uh, Hercules Collins, a particular Baptist who I believe is one of the signers of our confession. He was accused of saying, uh, from his defense of believers' baptism, that this would leave out all infants who died in infancy. Benjamin Keach, of whom this conference is named after, would come to Hercules Collins' defense, point to our confession of faith. He says, look at our confession. And he's speaking of this right here. And he insists that while Christ is the sole way for salvation, the manner to receive Christ differs for the elect infant. He says this, quoting Keach, because we're at the Keach conference. I can't skip this one. He said that all those dying infants who are saved, God does in some way or another, which is not known to us, sanctify them. For no one clean, clean thing can enter into the heavenly Jerusalem. See our confession of faith. I would point you to 15.1 of our confession. Our, our confession also says in uh, chapter 10, paragraph 3, that elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who worketh when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. And so if you take this view, the confession that is rewritten from the Westminster to Savoy and retained from Savoy to Second London, it's rewritten over a theological controversy brewing in the time, and it emphasizes the sovereign grace of God to dispense repentance upon the same person who he graciously dispenses regenerating life. And that is, that your repentance unto life is no more a cause produced by you than your spiritual life was produced by you. And this is what we see in 2 Timothy 2.25. Read again 2 Timothy 2.25. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance. Where does repentance come from? It comes from God. And just as one's regeneration is a work of God, so also is the gift of repentance. And we cannot boast, we cannot claim a glory in our repentance if we have lived uh, past the point of infancy into riper years. If we have been effectually called, I'll unpack that in a moment. If we've been called by God effectually, if we've been regenerated, and therefore as a result repented, we have only God to thank and to praise for. Amen. So whichever view you find most convincing, the general truths that I've spoken remain and fits the meaning of Scripture, the opening of the doctrine of repentance. That so long as you can hear my words... If you are indeed riper years at four or five years old, if you can understand that whether a youth growing up in a Christian home or you're an aged sinner, gross with sin, the most important element which we can say to you as a pastor proclaiming the gospel of God is this. It is God who gives repentance to the elect by way of the effectual call unto salvation. This is what we mean in paragraph 1 of chapter 15, God gives repentance to those whom he chooses by way of the effectual call unto salvation. And this is why the end of paragraph 1 says that God in their effectual calling giveth them repentance unto life. Now reading the confession horizontally, again I'm borrowing from one of those scholars, he can tell you all about it later. I told you he should have been up here doing this, not me. <laughs> Reading the confession horizontally, we return to the chapter that expressly deals with effectual calling. 
What does 15.1 mean of effectual calling? Well, we go back to 10.1 of our confession. Chapter 10, paragraph 1 starts off what we call the order of salutis, the order of salvation, the logical order of God applying the work of the Son in our salvation. What do we mean by effectual calling? And how, how does that lead to the repentance of life? We refer to this calling as effectual and that this calling is effective to accomplish that which it sets out to perform. We've been talking about, about vaccines the last couple of years, and we've heard the efficacy of vaccines. So we're now becoming more uh, familiar with the, the term of efficacy or an effectual concept. And so by an effectual calling, we don't mean that, that general proclamation that a pastor would give, uh, a proclamation of the offered, you know, any who hears my voice, come, turn to Christ. That's a general call. The effectual call is rather the outworking of God's predestination unto life, wherein, according to our confession, by His Word and Spirit, out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by His almighty power determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. In short, then, the effectual calling of God is the work of God to breathe spiritual life into the dead sinner. And this is what we mean by regeneration, to be born again, to be born above. And in that order of salvation, our repentance, our turning from sin, our purging out the old desires for wickedness, our abhorrence towards transgression, it's graciously bestowed upon the elect of God by means of this new birth. Now follow the logic of our confession, which is the logic of the Bible. That your new heart, having been born again from God, your new heart is a result not of any effort. Nothing that you have done has caused your heart to change. It's wholly and completely a heart transformation from our gracious God. Again, this is why Paul in 2 Timothy 25 speaks of repentance as God granting, giving repentance as though it were a merciful gift, not one that is uh, in your possession that you already have or own. And then Paul will connect repentance as a result of the miracle of regeneration in Titus. So go with me back to Titus 3 now. This is how the effectual call and regeneration connects to repentance. We see in Titus 3, our former selves before conversion. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is what it looks like to not be repentant. But God, in His grace, was poured out onto His elect, in verse 4. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, there is the effectual call. That nothing wrought in the human heart, or the human being, that would merit repentance towards God is verse 5. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Rather, God acts toward His elect in mercy to save. 
at the second part of verse 5, and it's by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. All of this harkens back to language from Ezekiel 36, 25-27. Confession cites that in uh, 10-1 of, of the Confession. Ezekiel 36, 25-27 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. There's repentance. And you will keep my judgments and do them. There's repentance. A result of this heart transformation. This language in Ezekiel is the language of the new covenant. Otherwise known as the covenant of grace. And it's this very concept that then leads us into paragraph 2 of chapter 15. Again, paragraph 2 says that whereas there is none that doeth good and sinneth not, and the best of men made through the power and deceitfulness of their corruption dwelling in them, with the prevalency of temptation fallen to great sins and provocations, God hath, look at this, in the covenant of grace, mercifully provided that believers so sinning and falling be renewed through repentance unto salvation. You see, the connection between the end of paragraph 1 and now we're into paragraph 2 is this understanding that regeneration leads to repentance, and this is all promised in the new covenant that we saw in Ezekiel 36. This same kind of new covenant language in Ezekiel 36 is used in the classic new covenant text of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and then it's again used in Jeremiah 32, 40. See if you can connect regeneration and repentance there, all offered and promised in the new covenant of grace. Jeremiah 32, 40 says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good. There's your regeneration. But I will put my fear in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. There's your repentance. Notice again the mention here of heart in Jeremiah. Not only does the new covenant of grace bring about heart transformation, the effectual calling that leads to regeneration, but this transformation of heart leads to a fear, an adoration, a reverence to God, internalized in the heart that's been changed. And this fear of God on the heart is what we mean by repentance. It implies that those changed by God, they no longer serve sin. Rather, they turn in repentance. And they no longer depart from God. They remain faithful and steadfast to God, not because of them, but because of God. Amen. Our confession makes it clear that the new covenant, what we call the covenant of grace, is the means by which this is all accomplished. And paragraph 2 also makes clear that the covenant of grace is a necessity for everyone if you are going to repent. There is no repentance without the covenant of grace, that promise of salvation to all who would believe. It's not a covenant of works. If you do this, you will live. It's a covenant of grace. I promise you life. It's there for you. Take it, receive it, believe it. That without the merciful work of God and the covenant of grace, not one person would experience repentance. Not one person here can conjure up repentance in your nature, in your being, in your power. You cannot manifest repentance apart from the covenant of grace. Not one person can do that. We're all sinners. We're unable 
to repent in and of ourselves. We're unable to produce repentance, unable to produce righteousness, unable to produce conversion in ourselves. We can only come to repentance by means of the covenant of grace. And therefore, it is a necessity then for the elect to repent. Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us, reminds us that surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Our repentance is by way of the covenant of grace. Now to be clear, as we're coming to the conclusion, which means I have another 15 minutes, so i got to go fast. <laughs> this might surprise you that paragraph 2 is actually focused especially upon the believer and not the unbeliever. It does speak of the best of men, but notice that it said God, having the covenant of grace, mercifully provided the believers so sinning. And then the citation that it offers takes us to Luke 22. I'll go ahead and ask you to turn with me to Luke 22, verse 31. Peter is here in Luke 22 as a believer. He would, in my mind, undoubtedly represent the best of men though we could use King David from the Old Testament and have the same point. And then when you consider the Apostle Peter, how often did he falter in sin? How often do we see in Peter the prevalency of temptation and the power of deceitfulness demonstrated? How great is the extent of their grievous sin? That as in King David, he committed adultery and murder or in the Apostle Peter, he denies the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the repentance that is granted to these two indicate that we also, and we're not the best of men, may also expect to receive a like repentance through the covenant of grace. The same covenant of grace that changes their hearts and grants repentance for them is the covenant of grace that changes our hearts and grants repentance. In other words, if God conveys repentance to the best of men who are the worst of sinners, how much more can we who are in Christ expect to receive that same repentance from God? And therefore, consider the work of Jesus in the accomplishing the covenant of grace. That in his death, his blood is the blood of the new covenant, Luke twenty two twenty, And that the cross work of Jesus operates in such a way where Jesus can say to Peter in verses 31 and 32, wonderfully remarkable and encouraging things to struggling believers. Look at verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, Amen. strengthen your brethren. We see here, operating in the covenant of grace, Jesus, he's acting as our high priest, our intercessor. He's praying on behalf of our struggle with remaining sin. And can we just pause for a moment and consider what it would be to have Christ praying for you? But brother, he is. That the Lord of glory is not only our king ruling over us, not only our prophet preaching God's will to us, he is our interceding high priest on behalf of us that we might have victory over sin. Amen. 
And if anyone can operate under the name it and claim it doctrine, it's Jesus Christ. That when he prays for us, it's an effectual prayer. Second in the covenant of grace, Jesus guarantees this turning back. He says to Peter, when you have returned, this is that word that we used earlier on, the epistrepho, to turn or to return. Jesus ensures Peter will experience it. He will experience a turning, a, a returning or repentance. And such is guaranteed to those who have union with Christ, who have union with the crucified Lord, that his defeat over sin becomes our repentance and our victory over the power of sin. And so the final and perfect, so final, so perfect is the work of our Lord in the covenant of grace that Jesus could say to Peter, as if it was a done deal, when you return. Indeed, it may be that many Christians who struggle with a lack of repentance, even in this room, it may be, not for a lack of effort, but for lacking faith in the efficacy, the effectual calling, the, the regenerating work of God in you, or it could even be a lack of faith in the efficacy of this covenant of grace that Jesus has has wrought in his blood. So I ask you, are you believing that Jesus' death has purchased not only a redemption from sin, but also his death has purchased your repentance? Are you relying upon your power to reduce repentance? Or are you relying upon the work of Christ? And finally, so fully is the repentance of Peter guaranteed by the covenant of grace that Jesus commands him, strengthen your brethren. Your repentance is a means to stir up others unto good works and repentance. And so your repentance is not for yourself alone. It's for the glory of God as you serve others, as you minister to your brothers and sisters. And so I bring this session to a conclusion, reminding all true believers in Christ, those of the elect, those granted saving faith and repentance, that repentance is a necessity of salvation that must continue throughout the life of the believer. And yet for the believer, even the best of men who have fallen into great error, who have fallen into transgression, we have, in the covenant of grace, the granting of repentance which leads to eternal life. And so you, believer, when you sin, you have the evangelical duty afforded to you in the covenant of grace to see to it that you repent. And the Bible knows nothing of an elect member of faith who, while he, uh, uh, while he has remained in sin, does not bother to repent of that sin. And until glory, we say not if we sin, but when we sin, and when we sin, the command to repent is yet still enforced upon you. But then be encouraged, dear saints. For just as you cannot cause your own salvation from sin, you can't breathe life in your dead body, you can't change your own heart, you can't force the Spirit to revive you, all of these come upon you as a gracious, merciful work of God. Likewise, repentance that leads to life. Repentance that led you to throw off your sin. The repentance that led you to change your mind from relying upon yourself and run to Christ. The repentance that God gives, He continues to give to the believer. It's the same gracious repentance granted to believers at your conversion. And it continues for the believers 
through the covenant of grace. That's the power of the death and blood of Jesus Christ. And we continually repent, continually return, continually flee to Christ, cling to the cross, and we rely upon the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord, it is a wonderful reminder that repentance, as we are introduced to this subject, is your work. That Jesus has purchased it. The Spirit has applied it. And you have given it to us graciously. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for the effectual call where you have regenerated our hearts. And through that change of heart, we repent and believe. Lord, we praise you for this introduction that our confession gives. That any who has ears, let him or her hear what the Spirit is saying to the elect. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.